Every day when you get up, you make a choice. In fact, you make it not just one time a day. You probably make it two or three, four, five, six, maybe ten. It's not conscious. It's just that you're making a choice. And it's really between two paths. The one path is to make decisions with the goal or out of a small heart. A small heart is a person who plays it safe, minimizes sorrows, or at least attempts to. Desires to manage down all disappointment. And so sometimes what they do is is they lower expectations. And they have no expectations of relationship, maybe even God. Why? Because they've determined in their life that the most frightening thing for them to ever face is grave disappointment. In fact, the scripture says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And they've made the commitment, I do not want a a sick heart. And so they live with a small heart. They avoid troubles, and for whatever they need to do, they minimize entangling relationships. When they get home, they avoid contact with the neighbor because the neighbor might be coming over to ask them to do something. And God forbid, I don't want to obligate myself. When somebody calls, they seem to always have a reason. Well, we're busy. When somebody needs something, boy, I just don't have the money. They always play towards what? Protecting themselves. On the other hand, there's a big heart. It's a person who is not risk-friendly, maybe, but they are not risk-averse. And they're not an individual who is always trying to play for themselves. Actually, they tend to be other-centered. They do not at all costs protect their vulnerability because they understand. If I love people, I will always be vulnerable to their wound, their rejection, or their pain. They've been hurt. They just don't use it as an excuse to not love again. They've experienced the downside of the church. They just don't camp on it because why? Well, they've looked themselves in the mirror and they understand they're not perfect either. When given an opportunity, though at times it may not fit their schedule, there's something that's bigger in them, something that moves them to love to extend themselves, to maybe even obligate themselves because they have a big heart. Jesus was hanging out with his disciples and they got into this fight with some other disciples. Small-hearted stuff. Who's bigger? Who's better? Who's more esteemed? Who's baptizing more people? That kind of thing where you're, you know, you're always trying to, my dad's better than your dad. My mom's better looking than your mom. My whatever, I have more money than you. Our car is nicer than yours. We're into that place where we're playing this game and it's a small hearted mentality that is trying to develop your esteem by something external. We're more important because we're baptizing more people. We started this. See, it was John that started it. So we get the credit. And the text says in verse 3, notice this. When Jesus learned of this, in other words, when he heard about the argument, when he heard about the smallness of their thinking, He left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Parents, this is for free. This is not in the, necessarily the sermon other than 
teach your kids like Jesus taught his disciples. He didn't sit them down and talk to them. He invited them on a journey. Hey, come with me, guys. We're going to go up to Galilee. And the text says, now he had to go through Samaria. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. If you're down in Jerusalem, you're Judea, and you want to get up to Galilee, the way you do is you don't go up through Samaria. You take a three-day extra journey to avoid Samaria. Why? Because the average Jew looked at Samaria the way the average Israeli today looks at Hamas. We're not going. I hate them. They don't worship like us. They want to annihilate us. They don't respect us. I want nothing to do with them. And so they wouldn't travel through their area. They'd make their way around. It's a three-day journey to get up north to Galilee. And Jesus was up to something. And he understood that he had some disciples with small hearts. They were measuring their value based upon what? Who baptized who, how many, and all of those things. And he knew if I leave them in that place, they're forever going to be competing over the wrong thing. And so he took them into Samaria, a place that more likely than not, most of them had never gone. And if they had gone there, they wouldn't tell anybody. And Jesus wanted to expand their heart. Every day, you're going to make that decision. Not once or twice, probably three, four, five times a day. Do I want to live with a small heart and protect myself? Do I want to put boundaries around my life? Do I want to have margins and all of those things that sound so good? Or do I want to live in a moment where I'm counting the heart of the matter, the right things? Jesus taught his disciples a number of things. Number one, he says, if you're going to have a big heart, then you need to be willing to reach out even when you're tired. Now, I know this could go in in a bad way, and you could say, well, Pastor, you just need more balance. I, I tend to think balance is overrated. So to be completely objective, but the reality is, you're right. You can be one of those individuals that can never take a vacation because you feel guilty. You can be one of those individuals that never takes time off because Satan never takes time off. And for whatever reason, if you think Satan needs to be your cadence director, you probably should try somebody else. But you can't miss this. Jesus heard what they were saying and he took them through a place that they would never go on their own. And what does it state? Look at verse 6. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was, some of your texts read weary, from the journey set down by the well. What does the term weary mean in Greek? It just simply means weary. It means you're tired. You've worked all day. You've been healing people. You've been teaching. You go back at night and Peter's there and Peter says, hey, Jesus, man, we slapped some mud on a kid and we tried to make him see and he didn't. Can you tell us about that? And, and, and Jesus, how come every morning when we're looking for you, you're, you're gone? Are you trying to play hard to get? What's the deal? Jesus doesn't have a moment in his life where he gets his own time. He's tired. And he's so tired, I think, that he sends his disciples into town so that he can take a break. And he goes to a place that he expects no one will be at. 
a well in the middle of the day. It's not when you go to the well. You go to the well when it's the morning. And, and predominantly it would be women who would go to the wells and they would be there getting their water and they would socialize and they would talk about things. They would talk about what they're doing and talk about how to love an obstinate husband and, and how to take care of sheep that won't listen to you. And all of those things happen there at the well in the morning. Why is that woman there at noon? Because like Jesus on this day, I think he needed a break. And he didn't want to be around people. He was tired. Fully human, just like you. And he comes there, and of all things, this woman walks up. Why was she there? Because she didn't want to see anyone. Because she understood that when there were parties in town, more often than not, she was the brunt of all the jokes. Do you know that whore down the road? Oh, yeah. Man, I'm telling you what, she, I think she's she slept with every guy in town. She marries him, gets rid of him. Only thing we can be thankful for is that she doesn't kill him. She understands, she knows, she's heard. In a small town, you hear everything. And that's why I think she went to the well in the middle of the day because there would be nobody else there and she wouldn't have to confront anyone. No one would have to make a snide joke about her and she wouldn't have to whisk away in shame. And she stumbles into Jesus. Paul makes this comment, Thessalonians chapter two, verse nine. He says, surely you remember brothers our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. I think it's appropriate to have boundaries. I think it's appropriate to rest. I think it's appropriate to take a vacation. But please don't miss the fact that Jesus does not let you off the hook when you're tired, nor does Paul. We don't get to use the excuse. Why? Because we're all tired. They say, and it's true, if you want to get something done, find a busy person. Because they're always getting something done. Carrie went to an event not long ago and she came home and she said, you know what? Every person I talked to tonight was exhausted. They were tired. I think we are. We're tired emotionally. We're tired of going to the grocery store, getting half of the groceries we got three, four years ago and paying double the price. Tired of going to the gas station and taking out a loan. I was filling my truck the other day and this guy came out and said, need help? And I said, pain, I do. <laughs> he kind of looked at me and chuckled. After I got over $200, he was like, man, you do need help. I said, yeah, Annie up, go fund me. I use it once a week just to go to the gas station. We're tired. We're tired of what's happening in Israel and we're tired of what's happening in the Ukraine and we're tired and wondering if, if you know, Taiwan is going to be free in the next few months. We're tired and we listen to that and we're exhausted. And if we use our tiredness and maybe even our busyness as an excuse, let me tell you what, the rest of our lives we're going to be living with a small heart. And we're going to forever be putting the boundaries on why we should not obligate ourselves to do something. And Jesus comes into this moment and he says that he was tired from the journey, from all of the ministry. He sat down by the well, hoping to get a few moments to himself. And lo and behold, 
the father shows up and says, I have a woman I want you to talk to. Jesus teaches you. There's going to be days that God is going to say, I know you're tired. And I want you to have a big heart today. I know you're tired and I want you to obligate yourself. I know you're tired and this person matters. They're worth an evening of listening and helping them walk through. I know you're tired. This person needs your financial help. A big heart reaches out even when they're tired. And when you do, a big heart sees people. It's one of my favorite parts of the story. Because Jesus, in his day, breaks virtually every cultural faux pas. Now, in our day, it's not something that I necessarily like. We are made aware of pronouns, and we are made aware of gender, and we're made aware of equity and diversity and all of those things. Jesus blows every one of those out of the water. He does. She knows it. She says in response, his disciples had gone into town to buy food. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, Hey, in case you don't notice it, you're a Jew. And I'm a Samaritan. By the way, I'm a woman. You're a man. Shut up. You shouldn't be talking to me. And I wonder if Jesus didn't say, thank you very much. I will. Have a nice day. I, I've gone through a lot of training, probably so have you, and boards I serve on and, and, and all of these things. And I wonder sometimes if all of the equity training that we're receiving is actually not helping us. Why? Because it obligates us to a quota mindset. Here's the real question you need to ask. Do people matter to you? Do you love them? Do they, do you care? Are you interested in them? Not do you have the right numbers, not do you use the right language. The question is, can you look them in the eye and say, you know what? I don't care if you hate my guts. I'm going to do my best to love you. Because you matter. And I'm not that interested whether you're a woman or whether you're a guy. I'm not that interested what background you come from. Jesus Blake's breaks every cultural boundary that these nations have been living with. Why? Because he looks at her and says, you're thirsty. I can tell by the way you live. I can tell by the number of men you've been with. And a question I want to ask you, are you willing to risk some huge heat By leading with not do we have the right numbers. So the question is, do people matter to us? Do I love them? Am I willing to sacrifice for them? Because a big heart sees people. Paul makes this comment in Galatians chapter 3. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, please don't go there and say, ah, see, Paul makes no distinction between male and female. Get the context. That's not his point. He's not trying to tell you that there's nothing such as a Greek or a Jew. If that's the case, then in other places where he utilizes his history and his lineage and his nationalism as a rationale for why he deserves a hearing. He's not trying to tell you there's no such thing as a Jew or a Greek. He's saying that in Christ, 
What matters most is not whether we're Jew, Jew or Greek or man or woman. When we stand at the foot of the cross, it's level. And Jesus comes into this situation and I know he shocks her because he looks at her and says, hey, you know what? I'm tired, but you're thirsty and that matters to me. And every day you're going to get that opportunity. You will. Multiple times. Do people matter to me? Even the ones who say disgusting things, even the ones who say unbiblical things, maybe about Israel, or even the ones who celebrate Hamas, and even the ones who um, make some statement that just offends you, you still have to look them in the eye, just like this woman, and as Jesus did, and say, is that a person who was made in the image of God? And I'm willing in this moment to obligate my heart to love them. A big heart sees people. And third, a big heart is always going to speak the truth without the indictment of shame. In this conversation, there's 21 verses as you go down through them where Jesus is having a conversation with this woman. Only three of the verses, he's addressing her sin. Does that mean that sin's not an issue for Jesus? Of course it is. He's the one who wrote the Bible, remember? And he's the one who said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's also the one who said to the woman, and and he says to her, hey, by the way, go get your husband. Why did he do that, by the way? To shame her? No. To reveal her thirst. Go get your husband. Yeah, I don't have one. Oh, yes, you do. You've had five of them. Everyone in town knows it. You've had five husbands, and in fact, the one you're with right now, I don't know if it was his choice or her choice, but you're so burned out on marriage, you didn't even marry this one. You just moved in with him, or he with you. Was he straightforward? Don't know that you can get any straighter than that. But where did he go? Did he shame her? No. Did he harass her? No. He's the one who said, I have not come into this world to condemn the world, John 3, 17. I've come to this world to save the world. Where was his focus? Not on her sin. Did he point it out? Yes. Did he make sure she knew, hey, I know what's going on in your life. What he addressed was her thirst. You're thirsty. And you're trying to quench that thirst through every relationship you've gone into. You're trying to quench that thirst, some of you, by all of the things that you're involving yourself in. You're trying to quench that thirst by all the things you're giving yourself to, the relationships you're giving yourself to, the vocation that you've given yourself to. When you really look at it, at the very heart of it, you're trying to satisfy a thirst. Michael Cusick in his book, Surfing for God, identifies seven basic thirsts, and I think he's nailed it. That every one of us, they're not sins, they're thirsts that God has given to us. God, throughout scripture, never condemns thirst. He condemns how we attempt to get it met. That's what Jesus noticed. Go get your husband. I don't have one. Yeah, you do. You've been thirsty all your life, and you've been going through men hoping that one of them will satisfy your thirst and it just isn't happening. 
And I think the reason why she wasn't shamed is because he was addressing something that no one had ever talked to her about. What they have talked to her about is you're a whore. You sleep with every man in town. You're despicable. Don't ever talk to my husband. Don't ever talk to my sons. No one, to my knowledge, said, it seems that you aren't very satisfied in your relationship. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why? I know what you're doing. Have you ever wrestled with why you're doing it? I know you hurt. And I know the words of the community are getting to you. But have you ever wrestled with what drives you to live this way? A big heart is going to speak the truth without this indictment of shame. It does. Why? Because that's Jesus' passion. I have not come to condemn the world. Nor should you or me. If I walk out into this world and I harangue about their sin and I focus on their sin, am I mindful that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? Of course I am. But more deeply, do I speak to the heart of the matter? Am I aware of the thirst that drives them? Am I aware of the things that stirs in their heart so deeply that God has put there? And they, in Jeremiah's terms, are digging broken cisterns. And am I willing to help them see the cistern that you're drilling is going to fail you again? See, the big heart speaks to the heart of the matter. He doesn't come with the goal of shaming her. He doesn't come with the goal of condemning the time that she came to the well. He doesn't come with the passion to help her understand that her view of Jacob's well is elementary at best. He comes to speak to the heart of the matter. What are they? If you want your heart quenched if you want your thirst quenched if you want to drink from something that will satisfy you the rest of your life there are two things he says I want to talk to you about number one truth you're about place should we worship here Jacob's well Jerusalem it's all about place and Jesus said no 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 you've missed it all there's going to come a day where people won't worship driven by place. They will worship driven by truth. Truth about what? God. Because if you don't have a true view of God, Cain did not, your worship will be rejected. If you don't have a true view about God, then your worship is simply going to be the worship of your own manufactured idol. That's why you have to ask yourself the question, do I believe this is the revelation of God? Do I believe this teaches true things about God? And will I allow this text to shape my mind? Tozer said the most important thing about a person is their view of God. It is true. But a secondary question has to be, where do you get your view of God? Where do you define your view of God from? We sang a song earlier today. Holy Spirit, 
We were praying to the Holy Spirit. We were asking him to come. Some of you thought, what? You don't pray to the Holy Spirit. Why not? He's God. Acts 5 tells us that there were two realtors and they were selling some property and they held back some money and they went in and what does the scripture say? You lied to the Holy Spirit. You lied to God. Whoa, when were they lying to the Holy Spirit? When they came and presented themselves and they were talking to God, he says, no, you were really talking to the Holy Spirit. Well, if you can lie to the Holy Spirit, can you not, what, speak to the Holy Spirit? I remember years ago, one of the best prayers I ever prayed, it was actually frightening when I first started praying it. You've heard me say it before. Holy Spirit, take out of my hands that which is not pleasing to you. Place into my hand that which is pleasing to you and do whatever you need to do in my life that I might honor the will of the Father. People say, well, Jesus taught us to only pray to the Father. Well, if that's the case, then don't ever pray to Jesus. You see, if the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are God, and we believe that because the text of Scripture teaches that, then the first song that we sang is a really true statement. Holy Spirit, come in this place. Come into my life. I give you permission. I know you're praying for me right now. In fact, the scripture says that you're praying this guttural prayer that I, it's so deep. It's beyond my comprehension. Take out of my hands those things that aren't pleasing to you. Place into my hands those things that are pleasing to you and do whatever you need to do. And you know all things, my spirit. You see, you worship God when you understand who he is, not from your fabrication, but from the scriptures. The second song we sang this morning, it didn't have a line in it, but it would, the entire song, go back and look at it, the entire song was built upon the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Was it those words in the song? No. But you went to the cross in my place. And did you have that moment in the song where you stopped and realized, I deserve to die. I deserve the cross. If we want to talk about fairness, if God was fair, and if he was going to run the entire world based upon fairness, he'd slap my head straight up on a cross. And see, that's what you deserve. And the entire song was about the glorious deliverance that God gave me because he was willing to substitute his son for me. Where does that come from? The scriptures. When you get to Romans chapter 12, he moves you beyond song. And he says that in view of God's mercy, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. So when you forgive somebody, and you do it because Christ has forgiven you, Colossians 3, 12, 13, and 14. You're worshiping. And when you persevere in your marriage, even when it's not all that fun, not because you're stubborn, not because you've made the decision, I will outlast her. But you've made the decision, God, I made a vow, and I made it to her, and I made it to you, and I will not quit on you or her. 
you worship. In that moment, you worship. Because you're responding to the glory and the majesty and the power of God. And when you give, and you give generously, and you're moved, as Paul says, by a gracious and generous heart, you worship. You worship. Because in that moment, why you're giving is because God has given to you. All of that is based upon what? Truth. And as Jesus was talking to this woman, he says that your, your worship needs to be driven not by place, not by historical documentation, not by Jacob, but by God. And do you know him? And secondly, he says your worship needs to be in spirit. Now here's a debate in this text. The question is, is it worship in the spirit, article there, therefore the Holy Spirit, or is it in spirit, not the Holy Spirit, but in spirit, and I would summarize it as in alignment with your true self, your heart, your spirit. Are you in it? I'm going to fall on the side of the second one, though some of you have an insertion of an article there in your text. It's not there in the original language at all, and so therefore, I don't think God is talking to us about trying to figure out what does it mean to worship God in truth and in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. I think he's more saying this. You can say the right words. The question is, do you believe it? Do you live it? Is this something that you own? You can be in the right place. You can read the most glorious liturgy. You can sing the most eloquent song. The question is, do you believe it? Are you worshiping something that has gripped your heart? And I believe that, God, about you. I believe you died for me. I believe it was for me that you died. When I worship with a human spirit, I worship with passion, I worship with love, I worship with a congruence in my heart that what I'm speaking is that which I believe. Spurgeon makes this statement, and I think he's spot on. God does not regard our voices. He doesn't. He doesn't regard the words you speak. They are true. They need to be true. But he hears our hearts, spirit. And if our hearts do not sing, we've not sung at all. Yeah. That's what he's calling her to. Are you willing to be honest? Are you willing to put your heart and passion and your true self into this? Is it what you believe? Have you become convinced that Christ really did die for me? The Holy Spirit, you really are here. And I can give you an invitation that I have the Holy Spirit, but I want to be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5. I want to be influenced by the Spirit. I want to be directed by the Holy Spirit. I want a big heart. And the only way I'm going to get a big heart is if I speak that which is true, but I also believe that which is true. C.S. Lewis states it this way, as long as you notice and have to count the steps, you're not dancing, you're just learning to dance. 
A good shoe is a shoe that you don't notice. Good reading becomes possible when you need not consciously think about eyes or light or print or smelling. And the perfect church, worship, if you will, would be the one we were almost unaware of. Our attention would have been upon God. Some of the strangest places in the Bible worship occurs. Hagar is with her son. She had just heard what no mom wants to hear. Your son is going to be at odds with everyone. And I want you to go back to Abraham and Sarah and serve them. Now you would think that if she heard those two things, she might say to God, why me? What she did say to God is I worship you. You're the God who sees me and you understand. She worshiped the true God, but her heart knew that he was good. She didn't just speak true statements. Paul was in jail, he and Silas. They weren't nice jails. The only food you ate was people who brought you food. The only blankets you had to cover you were blankets that a friend brought you. Paul and Silas were in this place. They looked at each other and said, you know what? The likelihood that we're going to die is pretty high. Yeah. What do you want to do? How about we worship? What kind of sick individuals are you? At least complain first. <laughs> I mean, at least criticize. No, let's, let's worship. Do you remember any songs? Oh, well. Yeah, I, I do. And they began to sing. And the jailers listened to those guys and thought, are they drunk? No, they can't be drunk. We haven't given them anything. Who sings when you're in prison? Worshippers. People who know true things about God. That's what it means to have a big heart. Is that you want to speak to the heart of the matter. You'll do it when you're tired. You'll do it with people our culture says you shouldn't be talking to. You'll do it when the, the opportunity is not perfect. You'll do it addressing not the sin that may offend you, but the thirst that you recognize. And you'll ask him what matters most. Would you like a relationship with a savior, with a God? Who will quench your thirst? Would you like to know that God? Because if you do, I've got all the time in the world. The big heart wants to speak to the heart of the matter. You're going to go home this afternoon and you're going to have an option. Do I choose a small heart or a big heart? You're going to wake up tomorrow. You're going to go to work. And four or five times during the day, God's going to say, I have, a, I have an opportunity for you. And it's in that moment we pray to Jesus. Jesus, give me a big heart. Let's pray.